Take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be starting a series looking at the sermons in the book of Acts because if you need something to preach, why not just dig up what some famous preacher has already used? As long as the copyright is done, you can just reuse it as your own. So once we're done reading, our text will be finished this evening. No, that won't be the case, unfortunately. Okay, we are going to be looking at the various sermons throughout the book of Acts. And really, my, one of my goals is as we see them, recognizing how the speaker connects with his audience. How he recognizes who they are, what their level of knowledge is, and seeks to make a point of connection with them to share the gospel. And I hope it will be an encouragement to us. The book of Acts is a transitional book. Okay? There are some aspects in the New Testament. You look at the epistles and there are things that we would say are normative for the church today. Things that still apply to us. In the book of Acts, there are some things that were done that still apply. Okay, for example, in the book of Acts, you see churches led by pastors with deacons serving. You have the preaching of the gospel. You have baptism by immersion after a confession of faith. The celebration of the Lord's table. You have churches sending missionaries in obedience to the Great Commission. But there are other things in the book of Acts that we would say are not normative. Things that we wouldn't do today. Okay, the church would meet daily in each other's houses. If we were to try to do that today, some people would be like, wait, why are you all coming over to my house? Go away. Okay. One of my professors uh, for the class of Acts pointed out in the book of Acts, everyone wore dresses. That's not something we do today. Okay. Sorry, guys, they weren't kilts. They were dresses, okay? You have the sign gifts, the gift of the miracles that we see the apostles doing, the speaking in tongues. Those are things that would have been done in the book of Acts to verify the message that was going out, but are things that are not continuing today. The book of Acts is the second of Luke's writings to Theophilus. The first one being the book of Luke. And in the book of Acts, we start off, the disciples are gathered together, chapter 1, and we have the ascension of Christ. From his resurrection or crucifixion to the day of Pentecost, a span of 50 days, Jesus is meeting with the disciples, giving them final instructions, and then he ascends to heaven, instructing them to wait in Jerusalem until the giving of the Spirit, which occurs at the Jewish feast of Pentecost. We see this in Acts chapter 2. The disciples, they're gathered together, about 120 of them. All of a sudden, the room is filled with a loud wind, and there are 
tongues of fire is what they're described as coming down as the Holy Ghost is coming on these followers of Christ. And to demonstrate that something new has happened, the disciples go out and they immediately begin speaking in tongues. Okay, they, they weren't going out and babbling. Okay, they, they weren't just going out and everyone's like, oh, that's genius. No, they were going out and they were speaking and the crowds were like, wait a second. I'm from this area. We speak this language. These guys are unlearned Galileans. I can understand them. How are they speaking my language? Some began basically mocking and saying, oh, they're just drunk. And Peter shows that that is not the case. In chapter 2, verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It was physically impossible for you to get up with what was available for beverages at this time. And even if you were to drink the wine for three hours straight, it would be impossible for you to become drunk. And instead, what Peter does is he takes a good chunk of the rest of this chapter and he preaches one of the first sermons of the church. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. And really, this first sermon comes about because someone has just accused Peter of a false lie. You're just drunk. And Peter goes, no, let me hit you with the truth. Instead, verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Here's what Joel said. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, 
Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Father, we ask that as we spend time looking at this first sermon recorded in the book of Acts this evening, that you would use your spirit and open our hearts, Lord, to the truth that you have. Father, if there is one listening to your message that does not know you as Savior, that tonight they would confess Jesus as the Lord and Christ. Father, for those who are saved, I ask that you would just use this to encourage us as we seek to share the good news of your gospel with those we come in contact with. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Peter, beginning his argument that no, we're, we're not drunk, Instead, what we have, his first argument is what's going on in Acts chapter 2 is the spirit of prophecy has arrived in the ministry of Jesus. Okay, in other words, this is what Joel is speaking of, and he gives this lengthy quote from the prophet of Joel, referring to the last days. And in the last days, something different is going to happen than what has been happening in the Old Testament time. During this time, the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on all flesh. Whether you be a son or a daughter, whether you be young or old, whether you be a servant or not, the Spirit of God during these last days is now going to be able to be poured out on all flesh. Before in the Old Testament times, the Spirit of God would come upon people to enable them to do something for a specific time. The Holy Spirit came upon men so that they would be gifted and skilled to build the temple, to build the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit would come upon the kings to help them lead. He came on Saul and King Saul, and then he left King Saul. 
Which is why when you get to Psalm 51 and David is asking, God, remove not your Holy Spirit from me. David's not asking to not lose his salvation, but he's recognizing he still needs the Spirit of God in his life to lead the nation of Israel the way that he's supposed to. But during these last days, something different is coming. The Holy Spirit is going to be given. The coming of the Spirit would be demonstrated by the gifts of the Spirit. Signs, wonders, visions, prophecies. And as you read through the book of Acts, you see all of these things being done. During the ministry of Christ, we see him performing miracles. Why does Jesus perform miracles? To validate the message that he is proclaiming. And so these miracles are confirming something. The purpose of these gifts is not to advance the user, but rather to advance the Lord. Now, there is some debate among the scholars in this text because not only does Joel's prophecy refer to the last days, plural, which started with the ministry of Christ, but it also refers to the great and notable day of the Lord, the last day, the second coming of Christ. And we're not going to get into that scholarly debate this evening because that wasn't Peter's purpose. Peter's purpose was not okay. Jesus, the end times are coming. The great and terrible day is here. No, his purpose is to say, listen, something different is happening. He is using this prophecy to remind Israel of a greater truth than that final day of the Lord. He's using Joel's prophecy to communicate that in the last days, salvation is made available for all. Because as he ends his quote of Joel, we see Paul using this same quote of Joel as well. There's the wonderful promise that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is a great message and a great promise. But that promise is only a good promise if we are now in the last days, which Peter says we are because of the signs, the speaking in tongues that the original audience was able to understand was a sign gift demonstrating that, hey, we are now living at this time where salvation is freely offered to all. Whether you're the youngest person in this room or the not as youngest person in this room, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the prophecy. Peter then goes and he explains this in verses 22 through 24, saying that this prophecy has been fulfilled. Joel's prophecy of the last days was fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Those wonders, miracles, and signs that Joel is prophesying, Peter saying Jesus' use of those fulfills that prophecy. We are now living in a time where it doesn't matter what station of life you are, it doesn't matter what gender you are, it doesn't matter your age, your wealth. Salvation is available. The validity of Jesus' ministry on this earth was demonstrated by the wonders and signs while he was walking the earth and then continuing during the ministry of the apostles. There were wonders and signs during Christ's death, the supernatural darkening of the skies while he hung on the cross, the curtain in the temple being torn in two, Peter's argument, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fulfilled Joel's prophecy. And so what you are seeing is not a bunch of drunken babblers, but rather the result of God's Spirit coming upon us. He asserts that Jesus was approved by God. The word approved means to show forth the quality of something. In the Greek, it's a perfect participle, which if we all remember our English grammar, Mrs. Lindbergh can explain that later, because we don't remember that, okay? But that adds to the permanence of this. Jesus was approved by God. He was who he said he was. God demonstrated who Jesus is by what he accomplished through him. Not only was Jesus approved by God, but he was appointed by God. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The word determinate means settled. Okay, so Jesus was appointed based on the active, settled foreknowledge of God. Meaning God not only knew that Jesus would die on the cross, but God worked it so that it would happen. One commentary, commentator states, what appeared to be a free, concerted action by Jews and Gentiles was in fact done because God foreknew it, decided it, and planned it. Another stated, this is the paradox of Jesus' death. It was engineered and carried out by human beings, while at the same time it was the climax of God's plan of salvation. Why did Jesus die? Was it because it was God's plan and purpose for him, or was it because the Jews wanted to kill him and the Romans allowed it? And the answer is, yes. And that's as clear of an answer as we're going to give tonight. This Jesus, who was approved by God, who was appointed by God to suffer and to die, also had that suffering alleviated by God, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Christ being raised from the dead. We see that death 
holds captive. Death brings pain. But death did not have the power to hold Jesus. The power of death cannot compete with the power of God. And since God had determined that Jesus had to suffer death on the cross and that he would be raised up to life, death could not keep Jesus captive. So Peter's argument defending we're not drunk, instead we're filled with the Spirit, is first, we are in the last days. We are in this time where whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he transitions to another set of Old Testament scriptures, arguing, secondly, who is the Lord? Who is the Christ? And in our 21st century American mindset, we're like, oh, we know that because his name is Jesus Christ. Well, no, he didn't have the last name Christ. That is a title. He didn't have Jesus, the Messiah, as his name. Peter references and refers to him as Jesus of Nazareth. And the Jews who were around would have recognized, okay, this is not necessarily the Christ, the Messiah. This is not the Lord. Okay, so Peter, whoever will, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, who is the Lord? And to this, Peter goes back to Psalm 16. Now, I don't think Peter had all of these scrolls with him. Okay, hang on, let me find our place here in Joel. Okay, somebody get me the 16th Psalm scroll and we'll read. No, Peter has this. Either memorized or the Holy Spirit is working in him to bring it to his memory. David speaks speaketh concerning him who is the him the lord david knows who this lord is david says i foresaw the lord always before my face he is on my right hand that i should not be moved therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. In Psalm 16, David is recognizing the continual presence of God. Recognizing that God is at his right hand. You know, we have the expression today, if someone is my right hand man. Someone that you can count on. Someone that you can depend on. It's said that during the Civil War, when Stonewall Jackson was shot by his own troops and had to have his left arm amputated, General Lee remarked, General Jackson may have lost his left hand. I have lost my right. Someone that you can count on, someone that you can depend on. And in Psalm 16, David is recognizing the Lord is ever before my face. He is at my right hand. He is the one on whom I can depend regardless of the circumstances that we go through. We go through times in our lives where it's just, God, where are you? Circumstances in life where we don't think that we should be going through what we're going through, where we may not see the end of the road. 
but the Lord is at my right hand. The Lord is at that position of support. And David's recognition that God is at his right hand is an encouragement for him to stay faithful to God. God's presence with him not only encourages him to remain faithful, but it also provides a joyful confidence for the future. Because I know that I have been able to trust God in the past, God has been faithful to me up to this point. I can trust him for what's coming down the pike. I can trust him for the future. He said his heart rejoiced. His tongue was glad. His physical body was rested. And confidence characterizing the entirety of his person. When we go through difficulties in life, we can have hope because we can rest on the faithfulness of God. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because God is with him, the psalmist is not afraid to face the future, even in death. He expresses confidence in God by not allowing your Holy One to see corruption, to see decay. And culturally, these Palestinian Jews would have understood the decay of death. I haven't had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land area, but from what I'm told, there's not a lot of nice ground to bury people in. Oftentimes, what would happen when a person would die is their body would then be put into a cave. And after a period of several years after the decay of death had taken place, someone would go in and just collect the bones that were left and put them into a special box so that they would be able to conserve space. So the Palestinian Jews would have understood what the psalmist is saying, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not allow your Holy One's body to physically decay after death. And Peter takes what David says in Psalm 16 and attributes it to Jesus Christ. Jesus expresses his confidence that God will always help him. He expresses his trust in God who will raise him from the dead. And Jesus is the Holy One whose body did not decay because of his resurrection. So Peter points out that the prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. His usage of Psalm 16 explains why it is impossible for Jesus to remain in the realm of the dead. Because he is the Holy One whose body will not see corruption or decay. So since what has happened to Jesus is what David prophesied, you will not allow your Holy One in connection with, I see the Lord is before me, this Holy One whose body does not see corruption must be the Lord. The Lord upon whose name whosoever shall call, 
shall be saved. So Peter is being very particular in his logic. And that speaks to my mind. I like that. So Peter is saying, because Jesus' body did not see corruption, he must be the Holy One. Since he's the Holy One, he must then be the Lord. Since he is the Lord, then he is the one on whom we are to call for salvation. Men and brethren, he continues, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. The psalmist of Psalm 16 could not be referring to himself as one whose body will not see corruption, because Peter says, we know where David is. You know, his body is right over there, or his bones are at least. According to Josephus, at one point in his reign, Herod was trying to find some more money. And so you do what every reputable leader does, and you rob graves. So according to Josephus, Herod had even attempted to have David's tomb raided to gain wealth for himself. So everyone knew David was dead. Everyone knew where David's bones were. So Peter's saying, David isn't the Holy One. So since David's not talking about himself, he's got to be talking about somebody else. Therefore, being a prophet. Now, we think of David, we think of him being a shepherd. We think of him being a king. What does Peter mean he's a prophet? Okay, not like Elijah or Elisha. Not like Jeremiah or Isaiah, but rather he spoke what God had spoken to him. A reference to the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 16, Nathan the prophet tells David, Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And David re-echoes or prophesies this in Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Okay, God has promised David, God is not going to change. Here's what God has promised. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. And David prophesies this, Peter says, recognizing he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Peter again emphasizing the fact that Jesus did not suffer the usual fate of physical bodies after death. So Peter's argument, again to sum it up, David cannot be the promise to whom God's promise of not decaying in the grave applies. The promise of physical life after death that God makes in this psalm, Psalm 132, is connected with the promise of God to David, assuring him of a future 
and eternal heir. So then God's promise will be fulfilled through the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ. So Peter concludes, this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have killed, hath God raised up. Why is Peter concerned about the fact that Jesus has been raised? Why is he bringing this out? To again emphasize, Jesus' body has not seen corruption. Jesus' body did not go through the physical decay like every other body. Whereof we are all witnesses. Peter's concluding that the promised Lord who would not decay, is Jesus of Nazareth. Jewish law required at least two witnesses to testify in order for something to be credible, in order for a judgment to actually be able to be made. Who are the we that are witnessing? Well, you have at least 11 of the apostles. Judas is no longer on the scene with up to the 120 who were gathered in the upper room who also received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So you have more than the two witnesses that are required to say this is legal. You have up to 120 people willing to witness that this Jesus is the Christ. And Peter's conclusion comes in verses 33 through 36. Jesus, here's the conclusion, has poured out the Spirit, or he's given the Spirit because of his exaltation. Jesus is the exalted Lord who reigns and pours out God's Spirit. And this is going to go back to Joel chapter 2 where we have God pouring out, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, God the Father saying, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And as Peter is wrapping things up, he's saying, Jesus of Nazareth, who has been resurrected, who has been exalted, is the one giving this spirit. So Jesus is not just the Lord, as if that wasn't enough. But Peter is asserting quite clearly here that Jesus is God. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he, Jesus, shed forth this. What is the this? The gift of the Spirit, which is demonstrated by the signs and the wonders of the speaking in tongues, which ye now see and hear. Peter's third argument or conclusion begins with the assertion that Jesus has been exalted to God's presence in heaven. We see Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And Peter goes and he again uses the scripture to demonstrate his point. 
Psalm 110. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Quoting Psalm 10, verse 1. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah, God the Father, said to my Lord. Okay, because David is speaking, David's my Lord could not be David. Okay, if I am speaking of my father, I cannot be speaking of myself because of my pronoun usage, I am not my father. I can speak of my children's father to be referring to myself, but if I'm speaking of my father, I must be speaking of someone else. So who is this other Lord, little or big L, little O-R-D Lord that David is speaking of? It can't be David. So the only other option is this Messiah is the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Because he has been exalted, he is shedding forth the Spirit. He is pouring out the Spirit. In giving the Holy Spirit, Jesus acts as God acts. Again, demonstrating that Jesus is God. This is why, Peter says, to conclude everything, you're hearing what you're hearing. We're not drunk. We're demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is here, and Peter has just taken a good 20 minutes to answer a simple question. Jesus, who was crucified, is the Lord and Messiah of the prophecy. Therefore, Peter's wrapping things up, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, okay, letting them know this is on you, his death is on you, you had Jesus, he was with you, you rejected him, but what has God done with him? He has exalted him, and he has made, made, he hath made him Lord and Christ. If Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the promised king who is expected to restore Israel, to bring salvation, then Peter's audience, all Israel, must consider the consequences of that truth. That audience must acknowledge Jesus' messianic dignity, recognizing, okay, he is the Christ. He is the Lord. And they must find salvation by submitting to the fact that he is Lord. God hath made him both Lord and Christ. Not that Jesus was not already these things. It's not as though Jesus died and at his resurrection, God the Father says, okay, now you're the Messiah. Now you're God the Son. No, Jesus was already those things, but God 
is emphasizing those qualities in direct contrast with how the Jews treated him. Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord in whose name salvation has been made available to all. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the King who will save Israel. Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. The risen and exalted Messiah equal in authority with Yahweh, with Jehovah. Jesus' death on the cross was necessary for his exaltation. And Jesus' enemies will be defeated. The Lord has said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus' enemies will be defeated when he comes again. Peter doesn't get to the altar call. In fact, some commentators would say Peter's just trying to defend how they're able to speak in tongues. He, he's really not giving a salvation, if you want to get saved, come forward now type message. But God is clearly at work in the hearts of the hearers. The crowd interrupts him. And they say, Peter. They were pricked in their hearts. They said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They recognized, okay, this Jesus whom we have crucified, because Peter took the time and knew what they knew. He used the Old Testament scriptures and demonstrated that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they rejected, is the Lord. He is the one upon whom they must call in order to be saved. And Peter said unto them, repent. What do you need to do? Repent. Turn from your sins. Call on him as your Lord and Savior. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 41, what do we see? We see they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now the book of Acts, again, to circle back to the introduction, is not normative. Okay, if we were to go outside with a loudspeaker and re-preach Peter's sermon, there's no guarantee that 3,000 people are going to join the Heritage Baptist Church of Frankfurt, Illinois, as wonderful as that would be. But the same God who did the work saving souls 2,000 years ago is still active today. Takeaways. What do we need to do? Okay, first, recognizing that Jesus is the Lord. He is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to all who call on his name. So if you have not called on the name of the Lord for salvation, why not tonight? The promise is there. Salvation is freely given. But if we have, 
Are we proclaiming that message to those around us? Are we taking the opportunities that we have to share the good news with those around us? Takeaway number two. As we go through this series, I want us to recognize as believers how the speaker seeks to reach his audience. Peter, at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Jews who were there were looking for, they were waiting for the coming Messiah. So what does Peter do? He takes the Old Testament scriptures that they understood, that they knew, and he used those scriptures to demonstrate to them, Jesus is that Messiah. What does that mean? That means Peter had to know who he was talking to. No, there's no simple clear-cut, this is the only way to lead someone to the Lord. There's only one truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ. But as we reach out to others, what are ways that we can connect with them? What are ways where we can take them where they are? with their level of knowledge with Peter. He had an audience this evening that knew the Old Testament scriptures. We'll get to other passages where the audience has no idea that there is a God. And how do you deal with those? Because we're becoming increasingly more in this country, a country where you're going to run into people who don't even recognize there is a God. But recognizing our audience, who are we coming in contact with? What areas of commonality do we have with them to be able to best present Jesus to them? Father, we thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you for this message from Peter as he recognized his audience and was able to clearly proclaim to them the wonderful news of salvation that whosoever shall call on your name, the name of your son, Jesus Christ, will be saved. Father, we ask that if there is one who is listening, who has never called on the name of Jesus as Lord, that today would be that day that they would receive the salvation that is freely offered. Father, for those of us who are saved, I ask that you would encourage us with the simplicity of the gospel, but also to be able to be intentional as we seek to make opportunities and find opportunities that you give us to present the truth of the gospel to those around us. Finding areas of commonality to share with them that Jesus is the Christ, in whose name we ask these things.
Amen.